From New York City, the Comedy Cellar and Rethink Production present Live from America Podcast. We will make America great again. How about new, you crazy Dutch bastard? Live from America Podcast. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. No, 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 no. Excuse me. Just so you understand. We can't be the stupid country anymore. Live from America podcast. I believe we can keep the promise of our founding. The idea that if you're willing to work hard, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what you look like or where you love. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Native American or young or old or rich or poor, able, disabled, gay or straight. You can make it here in America if you're willing to try. It's just words, folks. It's just words. This is Live from America Podcast with Noam Dorman and Haddon Gab. All right. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Live from America podcast right here from the Comedy Cellar in New York City, the best comedy club in the world. And uh, we have an all-star lineup tonight. We're very excited about it. Uh, welcome, everybody. We have uh, Mr. Nate Silver. He's a founder and editor-in-chief of uh, 538. And uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, and our friend, the return of our friend, Harry Inton. And he's a senior political writer and analyst for 538. At, at, at Nate Silver's pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 well, thank you he's for my, having he's me. He's my Kellyanne comrade. Oh, my. <laughs> he's my Kellyanne comrade. <laughs> I'm everyone's Kellyanne comrade. Yeah, of course. And a very funny man, comedian, Rory Albanese. And he's also a uh, Emmy Award winner writer for uh, The Daily Show and Nightly Show. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. None <laughs> of those awards are from The Nightly Show, but thank you. Shorter lived run there. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Stephen Calabria, the uh, producer and host of uh, the show as well. Thank you Welcome. for having me. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Are you excited e- about evening. this? So we started. Am I allowed to reference the time? Y- yes, please like... do. Ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. Well, People are sometimes like, don't reference the time because it throws the audience off if like things are... Yeah. Oh, most of our audience are drunk, so they don't know okay. what time it is. Okay. It's fine. Um, so uh, welcome to the show, Live from America podcast. We talk about politics, news, religion, Jews, everything, whenever we can. <laughs> All the important um, stuff. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, Harry is... Uh, he's hes really not a Jew. He's a friend of mine. So he's... Uh, <laughs> can we take a lesson from Jeopardy here and get right to it? You know how Jeopardy, they say hello and then they get right to the first question. Come on, let's go. Let's move. Let's get to it. The one they, time they right nobody wants something. to hear your friggin' banter. Come on. The one time, just to clarify, <laughs> they get right to the first answer. The first answer. <laughs> no, I don't want to be too much of a nerd about it. But, you know. Yeah. So let's let, let's get right to it. Let's talk about Trump today. How about that? His uh, new immigration. Um, I, I I didn't hear about it. What happened? What was the immigration thing? Anybody? And we, along with uh, Tom Cotton, David Perdue. Um, and there might have been one other co-sponsor. I forget who it is. They, inch, they, they a bunch of senators introduce restrictions to legal immigration. Uh, a new bill that, uh, while certainly set, set left-wing Twitter into a crisis mode, fact of the matter is there. In, from most reports, there may only be about thirty GOP senators who might support such a piece of legislation, and probably won't go anywhere. But these days, who really knows? What's the worst part of the legislation? So basically, it, they want to cut the legal immigration fifty percent, and they wanted to make based on um, you know um, uh, degrees how how well you speak English stuff like that. 
you know. Like so they words, have they want a certain level of immigrant of, coming in. They, exactly. They gotta learn English. You have to, have, you know. So a skilled base, not like mm, you know. Just yeah. So your kitchen's in trouble, you no. Know? And there's going to be a draft every year where, like, you know, there's a couple of team captains and we all get to draft. <laughs> so if you go first round, you know, it means you did pretty well in, your, in, the, in the combine. I'm well, surprised that that only got 30 Republican well, votes. Well, it's not that it's gotten any votes. They there, haven't well, obviously yeah, voted on it. The, 30 the, that's, that's what the belief is. I mean, let's let's be honest. The Republican Party right now has a lot of different bases of support within it. And there is still a large section of the Republican Party that is pro-business and pro-labor, or at least labor for business. And so that they are not going to want to support this piece of legislation. They want unskilled laborers into this country so that they can you know, run their businesses and have cheap labor. And this obviously goes very much against that. Hmm. Yeah, but that, that was always Noam's point. That That's been my point all along from the beginning. But it's that not I, happening. I didn't, I didn't understand the, the immigration thing because, first of all, well, that it's the it's the Republicans who benefit from immigrants, legal and illegal. There's Republicans who have gardeners and nannies and childcare and and have businesses and all that. So it doesn't matter how you end up uh, limiting it. The pre the real pressure is going to come from Republicans who are going to feel the pinch. I think of of when there's not enough immigrants, as opposed to Black America and and general poor America who until very recently was against this low-skilled immigration. I mean, I remember we've talked about it. Paul Krugman wrote about how low-skilled immigration depresses wages and Bernie Sanders filibustered the immigration bill. It's always been that way. And, and I think that, that, I mean, you can have mixed motives, that much of this comes from the Democrats seeing a pot of gold of new Democratic voters at the end of any immigration rainbow. That's what I think because you would, I mean, that's just- It's always been like that. Because and now and I'll say one thing and of course I, I want to ask Nate because uh, this is the kind of thing that as a guy who's not sure of himself that I would really look to data driven journalism to to guide me on, but I I can see both cases where a, an unskilled immigrant comes to this country and I know immigrants like that who are very very entrepreneurial you know them too and in a very short time okay. they're making good money and they're contributing to the economy. On the other hand, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. They can also, at the same time, be depressing wages. So, for instance, if, if we didn't have any immigrants, I would have to raise my wages to a higher enough rate that Americans, they say Americans won't do those jobs. They'll do them at some wage, right? So, I, one of the things I never understood is that why it has to be one or the other. Can't low-skilled immigration simultaneously depress wages and contribute on another end to economic growth i don't know you if you know anything about this stuff i mean i'm a politics guy i'm not an economist um but i'm sure there are mixed effects and it's a kind of complex economy and you have issues in general around um low skilled labor and how much of that is going away because of nationalization um or outsourcing i should say because of automation um so it's part of like a broader picture but i do think it's important to keep the political context in mind which is today was the day where trump um, had the lowest approval rating so far of his presidency. So 37%, um, you know, he hadn't been doing great before, but 39, and you've seen since the GOP healthcare bill failed, since he's kind of been flailing around with, oh, I'm going to fire Jeff Sessions, he started to get like a lot of pushback from conservative media for the first time in a while. Um, he is looking for things to bring home 
that kind of tentative Republican base mm-hmm. back to him. Because right now, um, you go had a poll out today where among Trump voters, people who voted for Trump, only about 40% now strongly approve of him. There's another big camp, 40%, 45% who somewhat approve of him. Um, but he's trying to double down on red meat because he's not really had a lot to offer people. And we might be at an inflection point where people start to say, you know what? Um, this presidency is not going well. We're six months in. We haven't seen any real accomplishments. Um, you know, we're paying a price in terms of having an unpopular president with the kind of broader American public. So I think he's um, flailing around doing some things that are constructive. Like I think having uh, a new chief of staff, getting rid of some of the people who were causing trouble in the White House. I mean, I think I'm not convinced he's going to pivot permanently, but I think that's constructive. Kelly in. Um, but also kind of kind of trying anything because he doesn't have as much to lose right now and he kind of recognizes at least subconsciously like what I'm doing right now isn't isn't working so well. Do you think that I was thinking about because uh, uh, Stephen, who did the email come from you or, or Harry about the Kelly thing uh, when he fired uh, and, me, yeah. and I was thinking this is actually a good development and I thought more about it today. I don't know if you agree that Kelly is of such high stature that if this ends badly between Kelly and Trump, it's not like Priebus who's a hack, basically, or, or someone like me can view him as a political hack. I, I'm not going to take sides there, you know. And he's a, but if if Trump, if Kelly walks off this job and says I can't work with this guy one way or another, yeah, then Trump looks. I mean, he, it's almost almost he almost can't recover from that. Well, he so already, he's going to have to listen to Kelly. He already has that problem where the people going out are probably more talented than the people. Coming in, and I agree. By the way, about Priebus, where he was a guy who was brought on to try and provide a bridge with the establishment mm-hmm. GOP, didn't really work. I don't think, but you can understand why the thought was there. It's not like he was brought in for his amazing political talent right. per se. Um, but you know, you have a diminishing number of kind of highly skilled and competent people working for the White House, and also when he treats people like he treats Priebus or like he treats Sean Spicer or whomever else. Um, you know, you don't want to work for a guy or Sessions. I'm not a Sessions aficionado, but like he's a basically, you know, U.S. senator has conventional qualifications, and now Trump is like getting mad at him. I mean, you know, it's very hard to hire well when you don't treat people well. Oh, don't I know it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, I feel like I know it more than you do. I'm the one who does stand up at your class. No, I. Uh, that's that's interesting. But I also think too that the conundrum of the Republican Party. People laughed a little bit hard, too hard. <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy, dude. Yeah. Uh, but no, but I, I find what's I find so interesting is the Republicans' ability. You were talking about immigrants. Wouldn't that wouldn't you know that impact them in, in the, the opposite way? And it's like they have this ability to do this Jedi mind trick on working class people where they yeah. convince them mm-hmm. that they are Republicans. And I think it's based on this. And I, I always go back to Joe the plumber and it's based on this idea of like, when you're rich, you're going to want these too. And it's like selling these people. This, and I remember Joe the plumber asked uh, Obama, he said, I plan to have a business that's going to make more than $250,000 a year. What will your tax initiatives do to that business? He didn't say, I have a business that is currently making 200. So it's just sort of like, so they, so they have this ability, like if the fact that the, the immigration stuff is red meat to working class people is the antithesis of what it should be. It's very, it's very interesting. And I, I feel like they're very good at like co-opting patriotism and all these other things and making people feel like, you know, real Americans are Republicans. Harry, well, I would say two things. Number one, 
We had a piece that came out just around this time last year. Uh, I provided the data for it. My colleague, Claire Malone, wrote far more eloquent words than I possibly ever could about the end of a Republican Party. Not the, although we had back and forth debates on that. And essentially what the piece's conclusion was, was this is a new Republican Party that's based more around cultural conservatism. And one other way of my doing that is cultural resentment, bringing America back to something that it used to be. And I think that this immigration bill, which is how we started off uh, this segment, kind of gets at that, right? I want to return America back to, you know, the English-speaking ways that we used to be. And I'll add one other point, and that I think is key, is that Donald Trump, although we sometimes use the words working class, I think it's important to distinguish between working class and working class from an economic angle and working class from an education angle. I consider Trump's base to be working class from an education level. That is non-white, uh, whites without a college degree, not necessarily from an economic angle. That is, the, many of Trump supporters, in fact, are people who are earning over $50,000 um, for their family net income. They're much more what we would term middle class by income, but they are more working class by education stature. And that's really what his base is. But wasn't W always fo- with a nod and a wink focused on social issues too? Like, well, there's a difference between social issues, what I would deem social issues and what I deem cultural issues. Social issues, I think of abortion, gay rights, so on and so forth. Although Trump has certainly, I think, been a social conservative while he's been in office, his main base, his main appeal has been to cultural issues, returning America back to some idea, you know, ideal from the 50s, which I think is very different than George W. Bush, who, if you remember, was actually pretty pro-immigration. I mean, you, I think you basically have, Trump got 46, is that correct? 46, yeah. Sometimes. Percent of the vote. Um, and I think of that 20 or 25 percent, are people who voted based on cultural resentment or whatever you will, or cultural affiliation with Trump or against kind of uh, Eastern and West Coast elites? People um, who cling to their guns and religion, yeah. those sorts. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is so this is put in a very unfortunate way by Hillary Clinton, but her kind of line about deplorables was a really dumb way to express it. But what she was trying to express is like, so Trump got about half the Republican vote, not quite actually, in the primary. Um, of people who voted in either the Democratic or the Republican primary, about 23% went for Trump. By the way, right now, the number of people who strongly approve of Trump and not just somewhat approve is about 21%. So it's, it's the same 20-something percent um, coming up again. Um, but you have another 15 or 20% that consists of, if you want to call them establishment GOP, pro-business GOP, the people who probably preferred uh, John Kasich or Marco Rubio, but voted for Trump because partisan loyalty is a big thing in this country. They certainly did not like Hillary Clinton, um, you know, and so they kind of came along for the ride, and they're the ones starting to question that decision a bit. Um, but what the GOP actually gets done are the things where you have kind of that pro-business wing um, in concert with the populist wing, which isn't really the case on immigration. Like, I think most pro-business Republicans are are certainly pro-legal, high-skilled immigration, um, you know, kind of neutral or agnostic on on other types of immigration. Um, So a lot of this legislation, I think, is for show to try and for Trump to redouble on his kind of populist base. Um, It's not going to work, right? Can't see it working. Well, look, we have an article coming out tomorrow about how, like, he doesn't have a lot of great options. And the reason is that, like, almost half the country now has a strongly negative view of Trump. So you think, oh, I'm going to kind of reach across the aisle and pull in some moderate Democrats, but like those people are so anti-Trump that in some ways to reclaim 
both tiers of the GOP base. By the way, one of the things he does that's probably smart for this is like one issue where uh, Republicans of all stripes, pro-Trump and anti-Trump, do unite is that they think that Republicans get a rough shake in the media. They think the media has a Democratic liberal bias. And so when he does that, I'm not sure if it's like that tactical in his head, but it serves the purpose of like unifying Republicans on the message that like, hey, the media is unfair to us and we always get a hard time. Sure, we have our problems. And so, and so, you know, that's what he's trying to do is kind of make sure at least the kind of 40% or 46% that voted for him is solid. Right now, that's not that solid really where, where you are starting to see for the first time real cracks in the Republican coalition among voters who voted for Trump. You're starting to see in the Senate, less so in the House, people push back on Trump. Lindsey Graham introduced a bill, for example, to say if you try and fire Bob Mueller, there are going to be consequences for that. Um, Jeff Flake came out with a book that really denounced Trump. I mean, individually, these things are marginal, but collectively, and by the way, um, his influence didn't seem to help the GOP on the health care bill. You had a big Russia sanctions bill that passed with all but two votes in the Senate and all but three or five votes. John, I'm against it? that bill, by the way, but go ahead. Bernie Sanders voted against that bill, by the way. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm against it. I'll tell you. I'll talk well, about you're later. both old Jews, so it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but like you are starting uh, to see. There's a stat right there. <laughs> you are starting to see tangible signs of pushback against Trump from Republicans in Congress. And they're the ones who kind of frankly, frankly have control over his fate. I mean, sooner or later, Mueller's going to either come back with a finding or be fired. And in either of those cases, all over if he gets fired. Fine. Well, now, well, but it's up to them, right? Democrats to take over the House in 2019 will impeach Trump, but impeach just means that the majority of the House votes to go to a trial in the Senate, and you need two thirds of the Senate, and that means you need like a lot of Republicans. And so, for Trump to make enemies of the GOP is a risky strategy. Yeah. Well, doesn't it seem though, in a weird way though, that him making enemies with the GOP is actually uh, is is going to bridge the gap between Democrats and Republicans in the in the House and the Senate because they're going to go like, all right, well, we all want to keep our jobs and we don't want this dude because, you know, now there's movement in tracking that I, 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 I track the alt-right Twitter. Um, I have I have a uh, I, I'm in deep cover. I have a, 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 a secondary Twitter account that's a deep cover alt-right oh, really? character just so I can like track deep, people. Sure, whatever you have to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's me. And uh, no, and, and just everyone there is all they're talking about now is, you know, Again, draining the swamp, getting rid of McConnell, getting rid of those, all these people, these rhinos, these rhinos, these rhinos. And all of those guys are the heart and soul of the Republican Party and, and Senate. So, I've, I mean, I, didn't I read today that they're starting to work together, maybe, the Democrats and Republicans on a new health care right, bill? Right. Won't that make them look like heroes and Trump look like a putz? And then, then they can play him against them. And, well, and it always seems like it's a larger game. What I'm worried, I'm not worried about, what, what, I, what it occurred to me, and I think I said this to Harry, is that if Trump actually... Like the only one who can resuscitate Trump now would be the Democrats. Like if if Trump gets in some compromise with the Democrats and passes some health care bill that gets it, that is that's the only that's the only way I see that Trump actually begins to turn this around. Yeah. Just to double down his Republican base and that's not gonna get him reelected. But what I'm saying is like Democrats are so against Trump and so far to the disapproval side that like that's a hard thing yeah. to do, right? Well, like well, they're like they're like to Democrats, you would have to make up for like Russia and, you know, um, and so many different things that they've built up. Like it's a debt that he would have to pay Access off. Hollywood. If Access if Hollywood. If Trump, if there's I so many reasons. And this was the thing. This Part of the reason Trump won is because like there were like 20 different things that certain voters objected to 
it was like the same voters objecting to 20 different things and like have reason upon reason to pile on for why they didn't like him. But like now it's like kind of what's the stupid fairy like the princess and the pea or something right? there's like mattress after mattress piled on for Democratic voters and for liberal leaning independent voters for why they would never support Trump. And it would take like dedicated work for months, if not years for him to truly pivot because for their own cultural reasons, Democrats are extremely anti-Trump. And so that, that's a dilemma that he's in. His base is large enough. I mean, we've seen it. His base is large enough under the right circumstances, means you get help in the Electoral College and you have a, a opponent who has their own flaws, shall we say, right? Under the right circumstances, you can narrowly win. Um, but he kind of, you know, was a very unique candidate. He won on Election Day. On Election Day, he only had a 36%, is this right, 37, 38, among people who voted approval rating favorability rating and he still won because of the anti-clinton vote the electoral college where his vote was distributed and people who are like you know what screw it why not take a chance um you know that doesn't necessarily hold up when you're an incumbent president and someone else gets to represent the mental of change i'll say two things number one if you look the latest quinnipiac poll which tends to be an outlier tends to be very anti-trump compared to the to the average poll but i still think it's a useful statistics in the Quinnipiac poll that was out today, Trump's approval rating among self-identified Democrats was 2%. Two! Two! This is, un- this is insane. Usually the opposition party, you know, maybe it's seven, it's eight, it's nine, maybe late in George Bush's term, you know, maybe it was three or four. But two, I, I, it's, it, it's an insane number. I've never seen. That's how anti-Trump these the Democratic voters are. And the other thing I'll point out, which is exactly what Nate was getting at, which was Trump's approval rating right now is basically equal to his favorability rating on Election Day in uh, 2016. But the key difference is it's one thing when you are running against the second least popular candidate of all time and you can win over some of those people who dislike both of you. It's another thing when you're the boss now and everyone else can just point to you and say, you know, I'm just not Trump. I don't have to tell you what my positions are. I'm just not Trump. And you have this unnamed sort of generic Democrat running. And that is far easier. And midterms have told us that. So it's I, like flipped, where there used to be like an incumbency advantage, and now it's almost like the disadvantage, foil. right? You're like kind of guilty until proven innocent as an incumbent until the well, other way around. I don't even think he wants the job. I mean, I really think the only reason he won was to lose and play this victim character and go on one of his tirades and get a new TV show. And he it was like, holy crap, I actually won. I wouldn't even be surprised if he doesn't run. He'd be like, I did it. I fixed America in four years, and he's done. Like, it, it, his kids don't like it. He doesn't seem into it. He he's hates the White House. So, he so, doesn't have enough gold on everything. You know, he's, he's, he's not a normal. I heard he said it's a dump. He's not a normal person. Uh, this is, this is, so, so I asked myself, because you guys are very into politics, and, and, you, and you look at this chess game of politics, but I asked myself, well, if, if I were in the White House, what would I suggest that our course of action be? And I'm going to start with what I, what I think. For instance, it should be on health care. I mean, my, in general, it would be, listen, forget about the politics. Get some sense of really what is going to be the best compromise position for America and put that forth in such a, and, and get behind something that you can defend in good faith. You don't have to lie. You don't have to spin that you can explain the merits of it. For instance, I would beef up the mandate, the individual mandate. Because insurance doesn't work unless you have people in it. Get rid of the business. Get rid of the business mandate because it's killing the economy. Uh, get rid of whatever taxes. If I don't even know enough about the taxes, and uh, and maybe have a risk pool because there's these stories about like one sick guy in Iowa, which 
you know, added 40% to all the premiums and the, and put that out there and say, listen, this, this is not perfect. Now, some people don't like the manuals, but this will, this is not uh, an, a gift to anybody. It will shore up insurance. It will also help the economy get out from underneath of this healthcare thing. And now I dare you Democrats and everybody to not go with me on it. What, what, what more do you want? You know, and, and put it out there. And if you go down with that, at least you went down, you went down in good faith. What, what would you tell him if you were his advisor? I think that there are a few things and uh, I would say is, number one, obviously some of the provisions that Paul Wurst of, you know, the ACA are the mandate, the, you know, Cadillac tax, stuff, stuff, like, stuff like that, that tends, which I think is what you're saying to get rid of. But it's important to note that throughout this health care debate, one talking point that Democrats had continuously was what is the CBO saying? How many people are going to lose insurance? Um, and that has been a killer. And to me, the things that we're suggesting right now, although they may poll popularly, at least in the abstract, are not necessarily going to get a good CBO score. And the Republicans during this debate have fallen into a trap where, in my mind, instead of arguing about better health care, better health coverage, they've fallen into the trap of how many people are covered. And no Republican health care plan that's going to be acceptable to the base is going to be one in which more people are covered than under the Democratic plan. And this is just a big problem, and it's a big messaging problem. And more than that, if people are kicked off, and let's say premiums do go up, going into the 2018 midterm so elections or going into the 2020 elections, who's who's going to be responsible? It's not the polling tells us it's not Obama, it's Trump. And that could be a big problem instead of the ACA being an albatross around the Democrats next, as it was in the 2010 and the 2014 midterm elections. It'll be an albatross around Trump's and the Republican next. Right. And so it's a big problem. But I'm, I'm saying forget about the base, triangulate, I guess. Well, like no, but, no, but, th but that's what I'm saying. Keep the individual mandate or beef it up so, so, so the numbers don't go way down get it off the back of business, lower taxes, and then introduce whatever free market reforms that the smartest people can, co can come up with because I don't know if we all agree, but I certainly believe that somewhere there is some way to bring, I mean, this this, this uh, iPhone, you know, we talk about this, this is, this is way more advanced than an MRI and it's almost free. I mean, LASIK surgery is hundreds of dollars because it's not insured. Somewhere there is some way to get people's uh, economic decisions to to force prices down. I think somebody's got to be something like that. It works in every other uh, part of the economy. But just do the right thing. He's he's the the chess game is not going to work. There's no there's no clever solution to this that I see. The base is not going to be enough to for anybody. The senators, as we learned, it seems that they're responsive to their own voters and their. Voters I mean, they are, but like this is kind of a worst case scenario where. Because the bill started out for lots of reasons, including they were doing a huge cut to Medicaid, which is a popular program. The bill started out being quite unpopular. As a result of it being unpopular, they kind of drafted the bill in secret without discussing it much and kind of took these votes kind of literally. We were up blogging it They'll repeat the in the same middle mistakes, of the night. Right? Um, but because the, I mean, like, it's obvious that when you're distancing yourself from the bill and you're like walking, it's like the subway car where there's like a, smelly homeless guy or something right you can kind of tell from people's actions <laughs> what they think about the bill and when people see that they're like you know what i can infer that this bill must suck because republicans themselves are afraid to be in the same room with it even if they'll vote for it i mean if i were trump then i would stage something with mitch mcconnell or not if mitch mcconnell wouldn't accede to it i would do the same thing right but say you know hey mitch hey paul you've got to start over you've got to draft a bill that's consistent with what i promised people on the campaign trail that does X and Y. Um, I'm not sure he really knows what's in the bill, and, and that's the problem. He's not been really kind of steering it 
in a direction that's consistent well, with the promises. He's, he's not a reader. You know, he's, he's also not a conservative. <laughs> he's more of a Fox and Friends viewer. He's than a, reader, a reader. He's a reader of people. Mm. And if you think of us, I mean, he is skilled at like reading a room and figuring out how to like persuade the people in the yeah. room. But what's the term? It's like like object permanence, right? We kind of don't realize that when an object is removed from your field of vision, yeah. that it's still there. It still exists. I have, I have a three, three, month, three month old baby, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like very astute, like reading a room. And we were at a speech in Iowa where like he realized he was losing the crowd. It's a comedian. Realized he was losing the crowd and like kind of cut the speech off right away right and very skilled in that setting and i think probably fairly skilled i never met him in a setting where you have a certain number of people around the table and you're trying to persuade them but like but there's no long-term strategy and fundamentally there is an incompatibility between um the populism that got trump elected and the things that the gop decided to make its initial priorities i.e the health care bill if they had started with infrastructure that would have put democrats in a much tougher position and McConnell much tougher position you know like spending more on bridges and roads is incredibly popular it pulls at like 90 percent and I'm sure after being through the partisan fray 90 percent would become 52 percent it's better than 25 percent or 22 percent where the health care bill is at um but, so you think infrastructure would be a good thing to but now it might be too late yeah. and like the thing is like he's got to also be smart enough and it's not about intelligence per se right but to not listen to Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and realize that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell are not looking out for Trump's long-term best interests. Um, but this is why I think some element of Kabuki, where like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan are very unpopular guys, if you could do a Kabuki thing where where Trump kind of quote unquote throws them under the bus, and yet it also lets them get a reset on legislation that's like not actually going where anyway. I mean, no one's happy right now in any party, but including the GOP. You know, that would be kind of what I would advise but but he doesn't realize um the incompatibility between what he promised people and what the republican congress has tried to do so far why might it be too late for infrastructure if it's so popular because he's so unpopular now that the right move for democrats is probably to oppose him you know when he's pulling at 37 percent overall and two percent that pulls a little bit of an outlier but eight percent among democrats um and we saw in 2010 where even though Obama and Democrats did get some things done, like kind of a frankly destructive, you don't have to have a lot of ideas to gain a lot of seats at the midterms. Different than a presidential election. You just have to have the other party's ideas be really unpopular. Um, and so like, you know, there is an element of truth when Trump complains that Democrats are being obstructionist. They gave Democrats no reason to vote for that health care bill at all. He didn't even contact them. Didn't even contact Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin didn't yeah, he, get a. He, they wouldn't have. But if we're being honest, just as was true for Republicans under Obamacare, except for Olympia Snow, um, if they had given reason for Democrats to do for it, you might have gotten, you might have gotten Manchin and Heidkamp, but probably not a lot more than that. Maybe maybe one to three Democratic votes out of forty-eight. But that's that would have been enough. Though. But that's the whole thing you're saying about what what would you tell him to do? It's like his entire bragging right about his life is that he makes deals. That's his whole thing. Yeah. Okay. So in my mind, grab, you know, the the Schumer, Pelosi, McConnell, Ryan 
force them and bring them into a boardroom. It's a good optics thing. Sit everybody down, roll up your sleeves and say, we're going to sit in here and have a conversation. I'm going to broker a deal between these two sides. And we're going to figure out, do the thing you promised you were good at one time. Just one time. Show us how good you are at making a deal. And then it, when it doesn't work out, you can blame the Democrats. Well, sure. Or you can or you can, or you you can, can sit in there and show people that you actually want to get it done. He's well, doing this I, thing where I, he's letting the Republicans flounder and fail I, at it, and then he's can, blaming the Republicans. Can I, can I just say this? You can only make a deal between people who want to make a deal. But they do because they want to fix the problem. No, I don't I don't know that any Democrat now to wants do. to save Trump from himself. <laughs> they well, see at him, this point now, They yeah, see him right. dangling. Why, why throw him a lifeline? Yeah, yeah. yeah I agree. That, that's I what agree. I think. Mm -hmm. but, uh, well, if, yeah, or at least you have to kind of super good. It's a little bit like uh, Phil Jackson, like, trashing Carmelo Anthony and then you try yeah. and trade him then right? you try it, yeah but it means that you'd actually have to like give the other team a pretty favorable deal for Carmelo Anthony or something else right like you know for Schumer and Pelosi to agree to things it's gonna actually have to like produce big policy gains and wins for Democrats and or create a big rift between Trump and the GOP um, because politically it's so easy just to obstruct uh, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we haven't seen a good test case. There have not been a lot of efforts for Trump by Trump to do things that really are kind of bipartisan. You know, my intuition, which isn't worth much, is that if he tried to do that, Democrats would find excuses not to support it anyway. Um, but he also hasn't has he also hasn't tried yet. But wouldn't it, that make the Democrats look petty? And right now he looks petty. I mean, say just optically, at least it would be right. You know, at least it would it would make an effort. I mean, I remember when uh, Obama tried to invite Boehner over. It was like after he did his beer summit. You know, he was trying to one one meeting at a time fix it. And you know, Boehner didn't want to go and meet with him and all this stuff. And and he this, did go though, didn't he? I think he did. I think he, I thought he rejected the offer. This is right when Obama got in. I'm talking about. But I mean, I just remember that all of that looked so petty at the time because it's sort of like, well, then he cried. And about then McConnell. So yeah, then McConnell <laughs> said the thing about all, all I'm going to do is make sure he can't get anything like that. That kind of well, although these, you know, he got reelected, but all of that kind of energy to me feels, you know, so, so 538 guys, is this the time you're, you're data driven journalists? Is this the time for a data driven third party, a Bloomberg type third party of, of people who are not in it for partisanship? We're going to look at the issues on the landscape it's Zuckerberg like slash Kid Rock tickets like <laughs> Kid Rock maybe I, I heard the I heard the Rock is gonna run forget Kid no, Rock, the it, rock I mean rock, has there ever been rock, I, I know I know rock, third party is always this elusive thing it never happens but it seems like it would hit the ground running in some ways now because people like me are so fucking frustrated you know I, I think that third parties need a number of things to go right. Uh, I think you need, obviously, low approval ratings for both parties. But more than that, you need a specific issue on which a third-party candidate can run. And I'm just not sure what that necessarily is at this particular time. Obviously, both parties are not very well liked. But look at this past election, right? We had the two most unpopular candidates of all time. Gary Johnson was a semi-serious candidate running in the Liber for the Libertarian Party ticket, was polling in the high single digits at one point, and ended up south of 5% of the national vote. I couldn't, I couldn't identify. Was it Aleppo or whatever? I, right. Yeah. 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 But but I think that it just generally speaks to the problem that third-party candidates face in this country, as we are a two-party system. I'm not going to be dismissive. I think we've seen so many strange things occur, but we need a third for a third-party candidate to succeed, they'd have to spend a lot of money, and more than that, they would have to find one uh, one or two positions that neither of the other parties uh, are really focusing on. Think, you know, like Ross Perot, for instance, or um, going back to George Wallace, you know, or Strom Thurmond. These were people who had one issue, one or two issues that they were able to really run hard on. 
And what's that one or two issue right now? I'm not really sure what that is. I mean, there are a million issues. Well, the one issue, to me, I know this sounds, it's going to sound, you know, impotent, but is reasonableness. Like like, like just not being a partisan fire breather. But believe it, the two parties are pretty good at figuring out how to appeal the average voter. They have years of practice, right? They're like Coke and Pepsi or McDonald's and Burger King. You're not competing on the quality of your product. You're competing on kind of brand loyalty. Um, on using every marketing trick in the playbook, um, on quashing opposition. And the thing about uh, Gary Johnson, apart from him, I think not having the smoothest time as a candidate, is like, you know, people are not willing to invest in something where they think they're going to waste their vote mm-hmm. necessarily. I mean, I don't think we can, we can get like an academic debate where like, you know, there probably be some academic who said, oh, there's only a 1% chance of a third party candidate winning in 2020 and i'd say there's a 12 percent chance or something right so i think it's like, like not quite as impossible sure. and you do have examples like france where where um political coalitions were scrambled but look to me donald trump and bernie sanders were kind of third-party candidates i, was I mean say, bernie yeah, sanders yeah, was not a democrat yeah. and donald yeah. trump was really not a republican and yeah. they kind of you know trump won they each won roughly half there's like quite 40 some percent but each one, roughly half of their parties, and prove that, like, you know, if we didn't have such partisanship, we would have like a four or five party parliament. And does um, and does the third party candidate have to win in order to do a lot of good? That's something like to get somebody out there. No, I, you know, if you could get someone, who, and again, I think third party candidacies are usually most successful around issues. And what you see is the major party candidates co opting those issues, and that's a way a third party candidate can win. And indeed, going back to Nate's idea, I think oftentimes people who might have otherwise been third party candidates run in the primaries and introduce um, unconventional ideas and the major party candidates kind of co-opt them. I think, for instance, Hillary Clinton moved to the left significantly in that Democratic primary last year, in part because she recognized where the energy was with the Democratic base. And even in 2008, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton moved to left on health care because John Edwards, um, whose political career, RIP, um, you know, was running so far to left on health care. So I think that third parties or interesting candidates can get their the way that they're most successful in this country is to get their ideas co-opted by the major parties. But don't you also feel like the person running as the third party candidate has to be like Gary Johnson was a joke. Like, in other words, what if it was, what if a guy like, you know, Joe Biden decided to run I'm as a thinking more of a candidate. Bloomberg, a tech, a, tech, well, tech, yeah. a guy who just, who, I mean, a guy who really just an, analyzes things. I'm saying, like, somebody who, you know, or for example, in this case, if Trump hadn't run as a Republican, but ran or as Joe a Joe Scarborough. Sorry, oh, Joe Scarborough. I'm serious. Oh, yeah, I don't know. But, uh. He's a man without a party. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I don't know. It, it feels like the, the people, uh, I mean, the last person, you mentioned Ross Bro. He's the last person I remember even being in the conversation because he, he was cool. like a billionaire. Yeah, and he was crazy, but he at least had like the money behind him. It just feels like these third party candidates who pop up are, you know, these Ralph Nader types or just people who split the vote and get the other person elected. I mean, I think I think a third party candidate who comes across as an elite, and of course there's some art here. I mean, Trump by many reasonable definitions is an elite right he kind of grew up in new york the only was, definition <laughs> right but he had that kind of appeal and ross perot had that appeal i mean so ted Bloom, kennedy i mean that's legit ted kennedy mm-hmm. bloomberg has like just a few grains of saltiness but like enough to get elected in new york but new york is not the world it's a little bit of a bubble and so i think you know the most likely consequence of a bloomberg having run for example in 2016 would frankly be him stealing mostly votes from clinton and Trump probably winning a few more states than he won. You know, I think two-thirds of Bloomberg's vote would have come 
from Clinton. And so Trump might have only had 40% of the vote instead of 46, but Clinton would have had 38, and Bloomberg gets, what do we what do have all, now, 22, right? It's all depressing. I, I would, you know, just to, the, to me, the Bloomberg type of candidate that once ran was probably John Anderson mm -hmm. in 1980, although he was not a, you know, he was a Republican congressman from Illinois. And again, a little uh, cuckoo. Was but, he? I don't know. I mean, he was, he was certainly, He's old. He was, I mean, he was, he was, he was 60 at the time, but I, I, I think the thing that was, you know, Anderson ran very well in New England, which is what I think Bloomberg would have done, ran very well among liberals who were well-educated, who were perhaps a little wealthier. I think that's where Bloomberg's base was. People who might vote for a Republican in local and state politics, but can't take the firebrand conservatism of the National Republican Party. I think that's where Bloomberg connects. But the fact of the matter is there are just not that many of them in this country, though there are certainly many of them in this city. See, see and this and this is, I always think about you guys all the time in the data data driven journalism. And and actually Nate said tonight that he's really only concerned with politics, which is something I I hadn't really internalized about this whole thing. I'm not like it, but that's where my expertise is, right? I mean right. I certainly have strong opinions on policy and kind of right. what the you know, but that's where my expertise is. Because okay. I always think about and it all kind of ties together, is that Data-driven stuff is really the can, is the enemy of political correctness, and there's so many issues, particularly race, that I don't even know what to think about. Like, like, you know, there was that article in the New York Times by this black economist who said that blacks are not shot more than uh, than whites. They're they they are pulled over more, but they're not, they're, they're not shot by more the police. Than, you're saying by the by the yeah by the police. Um, Heather McDonald has all these statistics out there. And Mayor Bloomberg fought very, very hard. He believed, and nobody thinks he's a racist, that stop and frisk was good policy, that it saved lives, you know? So, and then that's one side. Now, now those positions in certain courts will get you called a racist, you know? So well, I, look, the, the goal of... You guys are the kind of the goal saying, you guys could attack these issues. Now, maybe it, it would be bad for you to do it. I mean, I don't know the, de the details, but... Somebody needs to explain to us, like, am I supposed to believe Heather McDonald or not? Am I supposed to believe this article in the Times or not? I mean, are the, the, are look, the cops racist? Are they not racist? The goal of statistics and statistical journalism is to describe reality, right? And if you have um, reality where there's kind of systematic racism in the system, that will show up in the data in all sorts of different ways. So it might be the case that minority groups are more likely to commit crime. But why is that? You know, it's, in my opinion, anyway, it's not genetic. It has to do with the system we've had in the country for, you know, think about American history. And so I do think there's like, you know. But, that, but that's not the cop's problem. But there's a danger to saying, like, which question you ask um, and how you interpret the evidence. I mean, that requires judgment. That requires, you know, reporting from a journalistic standpoint. And so, like, so, you know, and we'd be the first to say that, like, putting a number on something doesn't mean it's the only interpretation. We're also not, like, at 538 postmodernist. We're not saying, oh, there is no truth. It's all about kind of who wins this quarrel. You know, we believe there is truth, but truth is, is hard to find. And, like, look, something as simple as polling data for elections, which is not the most complicated thing in the world, there are so many different interpretations of that data which is a fairly limited and simple corpus of data, right? I mean, it's not that complicated, and yet you can have different perceptions, different models, different forecasts, different opinions that uh, that diverge in a very complicated ways on that. So, you know, so we definitely write about race and criminal justice and issues like that. But like, but 
you know, I'm reluctant to say, oh, here's what the data says. Now and then that's true. Um, but 80% of the time, it's kind of more complicated. Did you ask something? No. So, <laughs> all right. So, well, but I, I found that really interesting because that, that, that's the whole argument to me with, you know, with black people having more issues with the police. It's sort of like, even if, if you find whatever statistical data you find, you know, well, there's an increase in crime in that neighborhood. It's like, yeah, but why? Like, what is the cause of that? And like, what goes, how far do you have to go back? I mean, the arguments get so complex and so complicated. <clears throat> I, I think the why is a dodge. Not that the why is not important. I think, but I think the why is a, is a, is a huge, why is the most important issue in the long term. But in the short term, the why is not the point when you're accusing a cop of racism because he shot somebody and, and, and when, Again, I don't know if they're reliable, but when what seemingly reliable people, both a, a, a black liberal and white, are saying, actually, we've done, we've run the numbers, and actually, blacks are shot less than whites in similar situations. The the explanation is the higher uh, committing a crime rate, the higher the higher crime rate. And as a white guy, like I just, I don't want to. I want to be on the right side of this. I want to be on the side of the cops if they deserve. And I don't. Want, and I don't have any place I can turn to. I'm like you got to do a ride along. I mean, the New York Times ran it on the front page, so I'm like, well, I guess they must have thought this was credible. But then, the, but then, it, but they're it, fake news. No, but then they never, they never, they never, they kind of buried it, and nobody ever talked about it, and it kind of disappears. I, I don't know. And then, Nate, you wrote an article um, it was about Black Americans are killed at twelve times the rate of people in other developed countries. You remember writing that article? Mm -hmm. And yeah. that was a stunning article to me. And I'm going to ask you. Uh, about it because I wondered something when I read it. So um, I have it in front of me. You, you have that um, uh, at, at, out of 100,000 in the population, United States blacks are shot 19.4 out of 100,000, which is the, by far the, the next the next highest is 6.9 Lithuania. And as we know, you didn't write this in the article, so correct me if I'm wrong, but most of that is by uh, shot by other blacks. So I, I don't know that offhand. We don't know. Okay. I, I, yeah. I believe that's the case, but I, but I took, but now, but this is what fascinated the article. United States whites are shot 2.5 out of a hundred thousand, just slightly above Finland. So what that article said to me, something I hadn't thought it was that with all our guns, with all the 300 million guns in the United States of America, among the white community, our gun violence is not much different than Finland. So to me, in a data driven way, I looked at that and said, this kind of tells me that the whole gun control thing is bull, that what we have is a race problem. We have a problem in the, in the, in the unfortunate communities. But you know, I'm, I'm hedging my words because you can't talk about this. So, so again, so it's like, what do we do but about I think, this? Am I, am I, am I, am I misinterpreting your stats? To draw though, but right? am I misinterpreting your? Just, um, if I look at, this, I say white America is a little bit worse than Finland. But so we ran that article. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Quote. We ran yeah. that article, and it was widely cited by a lot of people on every side of the debate, because you can use that data to say that proves the extent to which there is systemic racism in the United States, the extent to which policing resources are not used effectively in yes. the black community. You know, or you can use it to say. You know, this proves that African Americans are are violent, and like the, that, statistic itself doesn't like actually provide any opinion on that question, right? And so, just because you put something in terms of like a number, you know, doesn't mean that like I mean, I don't, know, you know, I think about 
um, you also have to think about who has responsibility for certain problems. So think about industries like tech, for example, where there are not very many women hired. Um, and, and you can say, if you're Google or Uber or Apple, well, guess what? You know, the computer science graduates at Stanford or people who spend a lot of time doing computer programming, 93% of them, or I don't know what number, right? Some high percentage are male, but like you're also kind of perpetuating that discrimination in some ways, right? Where it's true that you don't have like that much of a hiring pool, but then like also if it's hard for women to get hired, then it becomes self-fulfilling. So I don't know. I mean, I think like, but you know, look, 90% of the time when we're using data in our articles, which we do all the time, you know, we're using it to like kind of provoke more questions instead of say, oh, here's a thing we phrase as a number instead of in words. Therefore, it it shuts down the debate. I mean, the one thing I think you can say is that when you spend a lot of time looking at statistics in many areas, including in elections, then you see how powerful race is as a force that shapes people's uh, lives and experiences in America. Um, so I would say, for example, and this will probably upset a few people listening, right, that like, I think race is a more powerful force in America than social class. Um, and that if you are a well-off bourgeois black person, then you probably still experience more hardship um, than some types of white people who are kind of poorer off, right? I think that kind of shows up mm -hmm. in enough data across different spheres in American life that you see how powerful race is in shaping people's experiences. And I never heard of anybody, white guy got shot 41 times. No, you know. but this is where you're wrong. The Guardian has a whole database on it, and, and but anyway, so and then because I think this is these are the issues which are really dividing America. I, I'm torn about them. I don't know what to believe. One thing that infuriated me, talk about the nexus of politics, is when her, Hillary Clinton had I talked when Hillary Clinton had Michael Brown's mother on stage with her at the Democratic convention. Like that was like I was because Michael Brown, Darren Wilson had been exonerated. And not exonerated by Jeff Sessions, exonerated by Eric Holder, right? Obama's attorney general had said, this cop did nothing wrong. And we also had video of this guy, Michael Brown, terrorizing. And mm -hmm. I picked, I put myself, like, I'm a little wimpy store owner, just like this guy that Michael Brown was terrorizing right before he got shot. And Hillary Clinton and Obama, Obama couldn't say, listen, we, we have these terrible problems with the police, blah, 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 but we have, to be, we have to be honest, this guy, Darren Wilson, was exonerated and and Fergus and stand up don't shoot wasn't true he couldn't heal the nation he couldn't bring himself to say what everybody knew was true so instead they go they they double down on it and put the mom up there as if to say to America no this is really an issue and he was murdered and 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 they're just throwing kerosene on this and it's all a lie as as much of a lie as anything that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth in a much less sophisticated way but it's all just as much a lie, and it, it's infuriating, and it's, to me, it's, it's tearing the country apart. Well, I, I'll talk politically, and that is, I think that Hillary Clinton made a real effort in that campaign to move to the left on any number of issues, including issues of police and their interactions with minority communities. And many, there were many, many voters, many swing voters, who, with whom the police poll very, very well, although police, although police groups are 
the police as a whole don't necessarily poll well in minority communities. They do poll very well in white communities. And I think that there were a lot of swing voters who were turned off by that type of rhetoric, rightly or wrongly. And Clinton made a bet that if she went to the left on policing issues, she could pick up African-American voters and drive up turnout. But it just did not show up in the data where African-American turnout was not only down, but support for Hillary Clinton was certainly much less than it was for Barack Obama. And if you look at the data, if she had gotten the same support and the same turnout among African-Americans as Obama did, she probably sneaks by and wins that election. I get all that, but but the stink lingers to me. Well, all they have to do is run that clip of her going, I ain't always tired. And then (laughs) she loses all of But I also do think there is a component to the point you're making, which is, and which is frustrates me, which is, it's like when the system works, we're supposed to let it go. Like so, in that particular case, the system worked. It, the, the, the 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 cop was exonerated. We shouldn't, you know, use it as a political pawn. We should let it go and move on. But that's how I feel about bringing up Hillary Clinton in general right now. It's like Trump. All these Trump supporters, they keep. But it's like the system worked. She lost. Move on. And it's like they can't get past. You know, I love, by the way, Nate wrote that article about if Hillary, the, oh, if the Hillary Earth, won, the Earth two. Did you read that? Of, yeah, it's if really if the Earth what? If it's Earth two, it's basically the parallel dimension where Hillary won the Trump election. Still, Trump still tweeting every day. Yeah, he's oh, still tweeting. I gotta every, read but, that. But Kellyanne Conway has a talk show, right? But it's on CNN. But it's fantastic because it's not Hillary succeeding in some like magical universe. It's all of the actual obstacles that she'd be facing right now, six months in. It's it's really fascinating. You wrote that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I gotta read it. Yeah. But it's probably you know to kind of raise the question of. How much is Trump a symptom versus a cause? And the answer is not totally neutral. And by the way, you know, um, the Supreme Court, you'd have different uh, swing vote on the Supreme Court. You would have the U.S. not withdraw from the Paris Accords. So they're definitely important things. But like, you know, look, fundamentally, it's a country that elected Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. And those are four very different people from one another. And if Trump had like narrowly lost these states, I mean, he only won by tens of thousands of votes. He won by the biggest margin in history. I don't (laughs) know what you're talking about. (laughs) No one's ever won bigger. No one's ever had more people at an inauguration. But if Trump had (laughs) lost by this tiny margin, instead of won by this tiny margin, it wouldn't be that different a country, really, right? And so we're a complicated country, and we're a complicated country where, you know, look, I believe, I'm not sure if this is a data-driven observation or not, but I believe, you know, racism is one of America's original sins and still persist in a profound way to this day. You know, I also believe or I know that people voted for Barack Obama, who won twice with the outright majority and was and remains a fairly popular president. And so we're kind of a country of, of contradictions. Yeah, yeah, but if Hillary won, it wouldn't be as interested. Like nobody it wouldn't the news, be as- the news nobody will be watching the news or anything right now. By the way, I, you, I, you, I know you you, uh, you you know a lot about climate change. Oh, and, and I know nothing about climate. And I know nothing about climate change. So I'm not. Gonna, I'm not I don't want to engage it. But I just want to tell you what my gut was on the Paris Accord as a way of just putting my head on the guillotine, so you could tell me why I'm why it's ridiculous, because I really don't know much about this. But this is the way I felt about it. That it's the best thing that ever happened that we pulled out of the Paris Accord, because I think the Paris Accord, uh, because from what I heard, even if everybody complied, it would not be sufficient to uh, to uh, turn the tide on, uh, to, what is that, critical ma- critical temperature change where everything changed, number one. Number two, 
not only is there no enforcement, but I think we have to believe that these dictatorships like China and whatever, that they're only going to sign on to this as a way of tying, tying America down. And they're certainly not going to comply with these things. And, and mo- so that all leads to my most important point, which is that when people think they've signed something, they, say, oh, they, put, they pat themselves on the back. Okay, I've done what I need to do about it. And it takes up all the bandwidth and, it's, and that issue is forgotten. And I think by, by uh, having it fail... The only alternative now will be to, if there's going to be another deal, a deal which actually might work. Because I think the Paris Accord, if we'd, if we'd followed it, would have been our death sentence. What do you think? So, look, I think people who um, study this issue for a living, which I don't, would say that the impact of Paris was partly symbolic. They're not like a lot of hard and fast commitments. But, you know, symbolism matters in individual diplomacy. If you went to a summit in France and you started insulting the president and the first lady and insulting French wine and cheese and baguettes and like you pulled the tablecloth out and like said, you know, actually, who cares if I did all that? You know, that's just about politeness and we're negotiating X or Y trade deal and no one should care about it. Just kind of, you know, so there's some element of like, it is signaling and it's a fundamentally, I went to the Copenhagen meeting in 2009. Um, you know, I mean, it's total chaos. It's really hard to get all the nations in the world, or at least say the 50 nations whom have significant carbon out because they have significant economic activity, um, to agree on something. And if I pollute in China or the United States or Canada or Russia or whatever else, right, that pollution affects the whole world. And so, you know, the fact that Trump was kind of signaling a few to people, I mean, that is more the problem. It's not like there are that many statutes that were affected by it either way, but. Um, I mean, I mean, is the specter of global warming actually gotten uh, more likely or less likely because we pulled out of Paris? I think it's becoming is actually will prove to have become less likely because the, we don't have a symbolic thing that everybody just says, oh, no, we, you know, we took care of that I mean, already. The, the problem is you have an issue. So I think the average Democrat um, probably overestimates the effects that global warming would have in 20 years and underestimates the effect that it would have in 60, 80, 100 years. And that's kind of the problem, right, is that this is an issue for which we would not necessarily get immediate benefit, but you're, you're investing right now in either reducing carbon or carbon technologies to sequester carbon because otherwise we have a real risk. What does sequester mean? Prevent it from going out into the atmosphere? To collect carbon, collect right, it, yeah. or collect, prevent it, you know. They put um, it in a hotel. You know, and they got it's got to collect baseball for... cards, <laughs> but it is like building the New York subway or something, right? Where you know that's going to have benefits for literally hundreds of years or dozens of years at least. You know, while that subway system still exists, it's extremely expensive up front. But like, but that's a problem. Like, we're not very good at solving slow-moving problems in the United States, whether it's um, carbon, whether it's the debt, or whether it's kind of other things. It's human that kind nature. Of creep along. Yeah, that's it is human nature. I think most humans. Are, it's very difficult to wrap their head around what yeah. the future holds. But I do think with you know with global warming, with any of these laws, with any law, it's like no law is going to be entirely effective, right? Like drink, like in my lifetime, drinking and driving. I remember when I was a kid is when sad and mad and all these things came out. But drinking and driving has, by putting stricter laws on the books, has reduced. There's less people drinking and driving. It's working now. Is it 
100% effective. No, people still drink and drive, but not nearly as much as they used to. So it's the same to me. It's like that's when we talk about gun control. Like it doesn't have to be an all or nothing and all, you know, it could just be something as simple as, well, maybe you have to get like, you know, you have to get a driver's license to drive. Maybe you got to get a license to shoot a gun. Oh, you can't. Do, but but it's like it does, nothing has to be complete and perfect. It's just the Paris Accord to me. Like you said, there's a symbolic component, but there's also even if it works a little bit, it's a little bit less carbon than was in the atmosphere. Well, go ahead. I'll, you know? I, 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 I want to go back to the symbolism point. You know, Donald Trump was elected in part because he said, I'm this great negotiator. I make all of these deals. And yet while he was been in the White House now for only about six months, he has managed to alienate so many people. It almost <laughs> as if he has no negotiation skills whatsoever. He alienated tons of people in Europe. And in the G20 summit with all of these crazy comments, you know, shaking the hands with Macron crazy. And then maybe we'll get Chris Elizabeth. Push to, somebody out of the way. The well, Montenegro president. You know, yeah. and, and he alienates Democrats here. And I just think it's part of a larger problem where Trump has created this perception that he knows how to negotiate and bring people to the aisle. But in fact, all he seems to be doing is alienating people so that not only does that hurt those individual pieces of legislation or those individual accords, it hurts his ability to negotiate down the line, whether it be on global climate change or health care, but it could be, you know, some negotiating deal with helping to contain a dictator or on some infrastructure bill where Democrats will simply put not be willing to work with him. I agree with that. But he did uh, have a great deal in the Middle East. He made the most money ever. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that was after winning I'm, the biggest landslide in yeah. American history. I'm I'm, all, I'm almost out of I have I'm almost, I have like two more questions, quick ones actually, and then then whatever you guys. Are, I mean, this guy this thing about Sessions. Does Trump's attack on Jeff Sessions is that proof to a reasonable person that this Kislyak meeting was nothing? Meaning that Trump would not be attacking Sessions with that kind of vehemence and nastiness if Sessions had information that could sink Trump, right? If, if Sessions was there meeting the ambassador on behalf of I'm Trump's not, collusion I'm not, with I'm Russia. Not I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, no. nah, I'm selling. No. I mean, like, well, firing well, Comey was the dumbest thing Trump has done. I didn't say it was smart. I'm yeah. saying that that if 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 if, if set, we thought they fired Comey to try to, 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 to squelch the investigation, but if Sessions was involved in some conspiracy with Trump vis-a-vis -vis Russia, isn't Trump going to go a little careful about how he humiliates this guy? And Not necessarily. So he turns against him? You've talked many times about how and Trump is incapable fifth. of uh, acting in his own self-interest. Yeah, he doesn't. So why does that break down uh, here? Uh, okay. The, uh, he doesn't uh, even play. He doesn't even. It's not chess. It's not even checkers. It's just he like just throws things at the wall. Like he doesn't. He doesn't. Like he watches Fox and Friends. Somebody says something and then he grabs his phone. And he's like, yeah, well, Jeff Sessions is a piece of shit. And you're going like, well, so you're saying you that wanna, you want to run that by anybody? Wait, 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 you're just, or you just that out there on your own what, what you're your describing is mental is mental illness well, and, I'm, and i'm not saying it's wrong but what you're saying is I that mean, a guy a that a guy who's engaged in a criminal conspiracy with another person and he knows that this guy has has the has the goods well, uh, he might, while he's being investigated he he's going to call this guy names and whatever it is and say no he would never tell he would never tell Mueller what he knows I, about me I, he would never turn state's evidence plead the fifth and I put nothing. I would put nothing past Trump. I really wouldn't. I, now, does that I, make I, sense? No, but I, I haven't seen anything he's done that has made any sense. It's just like, why would you also? Why would you piss off Jeff Sessions, who's a senator, who was the first guy to support you when all the other Republicans are friends with him and they're trying to pass a health care bill? Like none of what he is doing is beneficial to him yeah, well, or the country. So it's like if you you have to remove logic from the game. Yeah, I think. Yeah. See, I go the full hundred eighty from what you're saying. I think. The fact that Trump was criticizing Sessions and was close to firing him, or maybe still will, 
that's a clearer sign to date that he's not totally in control of his emotions. Because Sessions, out of all people, number one, was very loyal to Trump at a time when it was not very fashionable to be loyal to Trump. Number two, like actually represents the populist part of the Trump agenda and is liked by people like the alt-right um, that are really important to that 37% support he has. And number three, also builds bridges with the Republican establishment just enough. Just enough because he was a former senator but and a former not colleague. Con- nothing, is, nothing there contradicts. I, I don't feel that's 180 degrees different because I agree with everything you said. I'm just saying that the meeting with Kislyak, if that was criminal, I think Trump would shut his mouth now. Sessions I think Trump, Trump, is, Trump is infuriated about the Russia investigation and he does blame Sessions and he's, and he's blinded for the, by the fact that he's alienating people by going after Sessions. But I think he would have the sense to shut up if Sessions could put him in jail. Session, That's what I think. Sessions meeting with Kislyak was probably not criminal or impacted Trump. Yeah. It was probably just a meeting. I don't uh, think there's any collusion. Uh, uh, connected. Do I think that there's other other stuff that went on with Russia and, and these meetings? Possibly. I mean, yeah. these guys seem way too scared of Mueller. It, it's, uh, that's all I can say. Right. I don't know why. In other words, the Democrats will look foolish. Let Mueller look. There's nothing to find. See ya. But it's like, what are they so scared of? They go, well, if you shake a tree hard enough, something will fall out. Not on I, my tree. I, I mean, my tree's fine. We probably don't want to get into this, but I personally, I I, lear- I felt that we should have learned a big lesson from the Clinton presidency and the Monica Lewinsky situation. I said it's Harry's going to roll. Like I've said it a million times. He's heard all the Where <laughs> Bill Clinton actually was guilty of the crime. He actually did perjure himself. And it was all, the, the punish, the cure was way worse than the disease for the nation. Clinton was accused of bombing uh, Sudan, wagging the dog, all kinds of stuff that went on to try. I think that if, if there's collusion with Russia, of course, they got to find it and he needs to be impeached. But to then, to, to let this thing morph into a investigation of Trump's business dealings and everything for the last 10 years, I think that can wait till after the presidency. Just like being sued for sexual harassment with Paula Jones could have waited till after the presidency. I think that we we need to understand that we're strapped in we're, we're strapped into this car, and we need we need the, uh, a, a driver there. We don't need him all the bandwidth of the administration taken up by this investigation forever. I think it's bad. But it for doesn't the need to be theoretically. He yeah, can Mueller just get on with his to, job, Mueller and Mueller needs, does his job. He needs to wrap it up in a reasonable time and understand. And 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 other crimes, they can go after him after the presidency. The Russia thing is important, but they. Don't, I mean, how long does it take to get? But wasn't some, Ken Starr really like out in the limelight a lot? Like it felt like Ken Starr was trying to make himself famous. Mueller's just doing his. I feels like he's just in the in the stacks. Well, doing but the his leaks job. and everything. Okay, last question. For we, you. we talked Thank about God. this too. For you. Last question for me. On, imi- <laughs> on immigration. Because this is this is what I always think about the immigration thing, and as I said, I've said it before. If we were, to, how many how many uh, Mexicans are in the country? Uh, let me count downstairs. <laughs> yes. uh, approximately a lot. Are you saying I mean, illegal? No, legal or, and legal. I, I mean, I, I know how many. I, I could tell you. I know how many. You know, Hispanics or how many Hispanics? No, Mexicans. I know for Hispanics. Like like six million, eight million. I don't know. Probably more. Right? More. I would think more. Let's see. I'll Google it. This is not, you know, this, I, I could tell you who hosted election night coverage on NBC in 1992. Who did? <laughs> 33. Okay, there's 33.7. 33.7 million Mexicans in the country. Let's imagine. That Boy, we, just a little bit more than your estimate. Yeah, just a tiny bit. It doesn't, about it, six it, or eight. It, only make, it, it doesn't really matter. From, I mean, it, the, the actual number doesn't matter. Let's say, okay, and let's say that instead of 33.7 million Mexicans, we had taken in 33.7 million Hasidic Jews. 
and imagine what the country would look like <laughs> in 30 years. Uh, there, there are many there's like Jews 11 Hasidic Jews for the, sake, for the sake of argument. <laughs> and, and, or or 33.7 million Japanese yeah. or 33.7 million, uh, I don't know, what's another? Canadians. Another, uh, oh, Muslims. Uh, Canadians. M Muslims. Muslims. Canadian Muslims? Mm-hmm. And we imagine, the best do we think, A, that you could bring in 34 million of any culture, no matter how different the culture is, and 30, 40 years down the line, it would be the same American, it would all work out. It would, it would, I mean, the rate of people who were born not in the United States, I think, is not particularly high by the standards of, of the U.S. I mean, the U.S., admirably, has always been a country of, of mm -hmm. immigration, yep. right? I don't think we're at a particularly high time now relative to the percentage of the foreign-born population. I mean, it's true around the world. I think we are, actually. I mean, I'm not sure that's true. And by the I way, you have an increasing share of immigrants from, from Asia, uh, and I think a declining share from Mexico and other that's parts correct. of Latin America. But like, but I don't know. I mean, look, um, one of the things that distinguishes the United States is that we are a multicultural multi-ethnic culture and that hasn't worked necessarily that well in other parts of the world i mean you can go to um canada <laughs> well no canada is also quite multi-ethnic but you can go to italy or you can go to um france france or you can go to japan these are all like wonderful places but like but you know i mean i mean there's kind of more diversity in queens than there is in like like all of italy or something like literally right i mean it's it's so that is kind of what makes america unique and that's kind of what gives us i thought you were gonna say great you know I was gonna, well, <laughs> thought we had to make it great again i don't understand yeah i mean well, i, I want to be too editorial you know yeah, I, mean, yeah, I, I agree though i i totally agree with that and i feel like there's always been in i mean how many italians came into the country and jews like i'm, I'm both of those things so how I, like it just feels like the country's always been that it's a it's a country of immigrants and like you look until we start coming well, no, I mean, <laughs> until you know. the Muslims start are, coming, are, are this country's definitions of different races and different ethnicities have changed considerably over time? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we we tend now to think, oh, we have Irish Americans. So it's and, like oh, right. Irish white, right? right? That was like a question. That, that, that was could... that was a real thing. You know, that we right. uh, races or different or parts. Italians, right? right. We're Absolutely. Italians weren't white, not when at they all. Got yeah. here. Italians and, were Mexicans basically now when they got here. They didn't speak English. Okay. You know, they were building okay, According to migrationpolicy.org, we haven't seen this. We are at, uh, at an all-time high of percentage of immigrants, and it's matching a, the previous high. Well slightly higher in 19 looks like around 19 15 right which is good year so and then but the, the all-time low here was 1965 well of course that they had they had had enacted very strict immigration policies and it was around that time that they reopened up right so and you know but what i'm getting at is that that i think that cultures do matter i as i've said that you know we, we still have the voting rights act all these years later because we believe that white southern culture is still not over its racist attitudes from the and, civil war and, but it, but it's not an obvious it, we should point out of course that it's not this voting rights act doesn't just apply in the south it also applies to many northern cities as well but so. we but there is a skepticism and I, and I think we all accepted that what white white southern culture is more racist than northern i uh, don't all right and uh i i accept that well, and i think that has, I, I, I don't know I, how often you've been in new york city in yeah. certain parts of it have you gone to have you gone to boston well because <laughs> I, 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 I went to school in boston i think and, that hasidic jews are different than mexicans are different than japanese are different than, uh, well, I certainly, and i and i wonder if it's if if it 
again, political Harry correctness. Harry's bewildered by what the, the political correctness is that, no, we have to pretend it doesn't matter. I'm saying, well, can't, can't, is it, is it wrong for Americans to say, wait a second, maybe, maybe some mixture of all these, maybe this, this blind feeling, oh, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. We, we can take in unlimited numbers of, of Orthodox Muslims, just as many as we have Mexicans. I actually think Mexicans are, are awesome, like compared to the problems in Europe. We're lucky to have Mexico. So I'm not, just, don't just, no, really. Did you read your reason? We, because I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I sound like a reactionary. Business, business Be, owner. Because, well, listen, look what's happening in France. Uh, Mexicans, after all, are Christians and, and Western, and they are, uh, they, they don't come here hating our values or whatever it is. It, we don't have, there's a quicker assimilation process. I mean, you're a Muslim. You, we've, you've talked about it. You agree with me on this. I think 35.5 million uh, Muslims from countries where they execute homosexuals and all the kind of stuff that goes on there would have a different effect on America than 35.5 million French people, right? Is that, you can't you can't say this. I'm, I'm I'm asking. If I'm wrong, just tell me I'm wrong. No, I don't think so because uh, th that's the whole idea of coming here is to be a part of the culture of the values. So when you come here, you change. You become American. You can't, that's my point. You can't. No, you, you can't stone a rapist. So, in so, yeah. soda. so you're exactly. saying. Exactly. So you're saying no matter what, as much as you like people. to. I want to. I, I don't care yeah. how much they tell you. That, <laughs> so in, in so in the 1700s, <laughs> it's uh, seventeen hundreds, seventeen seventy six to eighteen fifty, whatever it is, no matter what part of the world this land filled up from even if in, from africa for me whatever it is it would still be the same america today it would still it would have still had the same highs the same lows the, we, the, 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 yeah. the, the, it's the, like a weird the, the building block cultures had nothing we didn't benefit well, from having european culture here we didn't benefit from that. Well, I mean, I, like nobody liked the Irish when they got here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was like, that's why I'm always blown away by like Sean Hannity and these people. I'm like, what? you're Irish. You know, you're not even white. Like, I wouldn't I, want 33 million Hasidic Jews here. I'll be the first to say. I wouldn't call it anti-Semitism. Yeah, we'll just we just smell. We a don't need that kind of orthodoxy. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, like, I, it's like, all right. I think you're not, you're not the only one. I think we're smacking up. Oh, I, I think I'm smacking up against a, a kind of political. Well, I, I think in you know, Israel, no, I don't I, think I, in Israel they have an issue with Orthodox Jews because they won't serve in the military and they're very religious. It's a problem and they don't in Israel. To, why, yeah, can't they, it, why can't it be a problem could, here? It could I, be a problem here. I, I, I think the the question is whether different is worse or better, and I don't necessarily know that we know the answer to that. I think obviously countries are different depending on who's there and who's not. But what makes a better America, I think, is oftentimes in the eye of the beholder, and clearly. You hold a point of view, and you're entitled to that. And no, I, and, I'm and, saying, and, and do also, the voters have a right to say, "I want to go in this direction and not well, that direction," uh, uh, without being called racist? You know, I don't think I want to go in the direction of what I'm seeing in this country because I, I, I kind of like the vibe of the people from these countries, where they kind of think like me and agree with but, my values. I mean, does, let's try to take more from there. Doesn't history show us though that immigrants that makes you bad? But hi immigrants historically are the most motivated to Absolutely. like get into this country and yep. work and prove themselves like the, the 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 current culture in my opinion that is like lazy and entitled are the like you know great grandkids are like the jews right. italians so, Irish, as all an these employer people. you're right right so in yeah. other words it's like they're the ones going to college they're going to like yeah. three third tier I, colleges well this is why like you can't quite imagine because like it's not like you would take 35 million people from Malaysia or something, right? And like beam them here with a transporter. There are people that would choose to come here and the factors that would encourage them to come here include to some extent integrating in a successful way yep. with local culture. So they would say, you know what? I want to have more of my family over here, right? And so like 
So like if um if we had a uh Muslim country, if Mexico by accident of colonization were a Muslim country, um instead of being like Spanish slash mestizo slash colonial, then we would be having like the opposite conversation, right? It's like I understand Exactly. You know, Muslims, yeah. and I get Muslims, and they have found ways to kind of integrate with American culture. But these Hispanics, you know, totally different customs, and like I don't understand Catholicism; it makes no sense to me. I'm not like a total relativist. I think there are differences between different religions. Look what's um, happening in Turkey. But but the but main, like but the point is that like what we think of as American is exactly. dictated in part by who our neighbors are. And so you know, if you live in a neighborhood, every neighborhood in New York will feel normal to you after you've lived there long enough because you feel it like, because by definition it's a neighborhood by definition people live there and they learn how to live often with great tension with one another and so like so yeah it would be strange if you kind of suddenly randomize like the ethnic makeup of the united states but like but you know but things evolve for a reason and it's kind of like a hypothetical that is at some point like a little bit brett stevens said almost the same answer harry you rolled my eyes at turkey why did you no I, rolled your I, eyes at turkey I, no no I, I think that this is exactly right. Just because I, I think this just goes back to the point, just because something is different doesn't make it better or worse. Yep. And we in the city of New York, in which we live in, there are many different cultures that live in close proximity to each other, and we have a fairly peaceful city. Obviously, there are times in which urban areas or rural areas, when you all of a sudden inject some new group into them, have a, a time of tumult. But I think that people, generally speaking, are able to adjust their behaviors and adjust not only that, their attitudes towards different people. And so I just think it's it's an interesting hypothetical, I guess, but it is and exactly And you need that. people here that don't speak English. But you need people there. Isn't it, isn't it interesting, though, that the places like New York and cities where there actually are a lot of different cultures living together, all I, would, I don't want to say all of them, I, mean, you know, I would leave the statistics to these guys, but most of the people who live in uh, cities like this are okay with immigration and people who are not around it and have like these and people are, have these like theoretical like, views yeah, of what point. these like yeah. scary jews are like and these muslims uh, are except, like except people who live on border towns well no yeah, but not true towns, like people in south texas are more practical about immigration and more modern about immigration than people who live uh, say in Oklahoma, where you don't actually have very. What much. about those Arizona, you know, border towns well, where they were all Arpaio went went bye bye. Again, yeah. again, I I may not know what I'm talking about. But so. <laughs> I, I would I would just point out that in the state of Texas, which is one of the most diverse states in the country when it comes to Latinos, and also there's a large African American population in Texas. But the Latino population in Texas is actually considerably more Republican than the Latino population yeah. in other states. Although, where where are the states of Clinton? gain the most in two of them are texas and arizona yeah um utah is another because the mormons are their own thing yeah. sure. but like yeah. but like well, texas, mormons are another texas great example. was closer than iowa last yeah. year but here mormons are a real example what what does it mean to take in i mean imagine them as immigrants some some cultures can be very stubborn about staying within themselves and whatever it is and i i i don't know i as far as the mexicans just to be clear i know probably better than anybody unbelievable you cannot catch I have a lot of Mexican. You cannot catch my Mexican employees not working. Literally, you cannot catch them not working. I said one of them is more valuable than three American employees. Yeah, it's it, it, unbelievable, unbelievable. So, what about your Middle Eastern? Uh, Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern. He too. would not hire a Middle no. Eastern. What is this? <laughs> Listen, what are you, you crazy? Know, it is, the, 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 the work, the work ethic. He, he have more Middle Eastern. The, the work ethic of immigrants is very, very, very good. I think across the board. What, yeah. I, what I'm worried because about because our English is bad. We don't know what day off is. What I'm worried about like and all I'm worried later. about is is the intention 
from melting. We've talked about a melting pot versus mosaic. Does every culture yearn to be melted in the same way? Like my father did when he came over. He wanted to be American. And do some cultures actually look down their nose at the idea of melting in and will come here and try to maintain their, well, I mean, their thing? I like, mean, New York. New and that's York, what worries me. You feel the mosaic. It's If you're on the train or you're out in Queens or something, it's not like... It's not like the individual cultures have lost their identity. I yeah. mean, God, live here for, you know, block to block. I mean, they retain their identity. Chinatown? And, just yeah. Chinatown is... Exactly. <laughs> it's China. All right, you guys, actually, actually, you know what? You guys are kind of convincing me. Yeah. yeah. Honestly. I, I, I have, what about North Koreatown? Those two blocks with no electricity in New York? Have you ever been there? <laughs> I have a quick question. Do you guys think that the uh, election system will ever change to a popular vote only? No. I mean, not in our lifetimes. No. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, in 69, they came closest after that election. But as long as one party believes that they have an advantage because of the system that's employed, no. Do you think that, it should change? That's a question that I will not answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll talk about, talk about immigrants. You won't talk about I got to go do a spot. Yeah, yeah, we all have to go. I can tell, tell Nate wants to go. We, and we, um, we're very, very, uh, first of all, we should not take Harry for granted be, just because we see him all the time. We should never forget how how, how uh, impressive he is and how lucky we are to have him. Oh, but, so uh, sweet. But Nate is not usually here. And he's also even an even bigger shot than than Harry. So and and he didn't have to do this. <laughs> and we really, really honored and, and appreciate having uh, someone as uh, esteemed as Nate Silver do our podcast and Roy Alvin. Well, I'm, doing, I'm, doing, I'm just usually <laughs> hanging out downstairs eating hummus. It's not what, was it all right? I, did I upset you with something I said? No, no, no. Oh, okay, Look, okay. you know, we're having these debates, and they're they're debates that real people talk about. I might not agree with you on all of them. Yeah, but no, like, I, yeah. I don't want. Yeah, you. nobody. Nobody. I actually agrees. look to say they're talk about things. Real conversation. Yeah, questions. I want. I want disagreement. I think it's more interesting to listen to disagreement. Yeah. Than it is. Nate, last yeah. question, yeah. last one, and then we we and I know you, you proved that you know can use statistic in like politics and sports. Are there other areas that you think you can uh, do the same thing? I mean, sure, look, I think the pe thing people don't get is, like, statistics are meant to describe the real world. And if the real world's a complicated place, then statistics are going to be complicated, too. But, yeah, I mean, look, if you're interested in making good decisions, then you have to start to look at things more systematically. And you have to start to measure things mm -hmm. and measure things accurately and understand how systems work. But to me, like, statistics are the basis for for science, right? It's when you go from observing things to making conclusions about how the world works. I just thought of what Trump should say. He should say, look, what was this, 38%? He said, look, politics is hard. I'm batting 380. That's batting pretty good. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Can he, can he use... I'm batting 380. Politics is hard. But it is because in many fields, right, um, if you have 38% of the population, then that's an incredibly popular product. And that's yeah. kind of in real estate, right? You have to appeal to like, now everyone's going to like the Trump hotel. By the way, Trump hotels are pretty nice. I want to say that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, the one in Chicago is pretty nice. Got a great view and like, but like, but if you appeal to like a certain demographic, then that works and kind of almost by accident that proved to be, maybe not by accident, give them credit, you know, that proved to be kind of a brilliant strategy in the GOP primary, where if you differentiate yourself the most in a field of 17 products and you become the top conversation, it doesn't matter if 57% of Republican voters had another first choice, if you get all that 43% because mm -hmm. it's a referendum on you, then you succeeded at that. Um, you know, I think sometimes he applies the same strategy to the general election when, I don't know, I think there was more skill than luck in Trump winning the primary and more happenstance than skill in Trump winning the general election. And so I think 
The call me letter. The call me letter, Clinton, the electoral college happening. I mean, in another kind of, we talk about alternate universes. In an alternate universe, you know, maybe it's the case that like blue states are overrepresented in electoral college. Maybe like each borough in New York is its own state and has like six electoral votes. You really accumulate lots of extra votes that way by being strong in New York and, and New Jersey or something like that, right? Um, so in some ways, it was sort of required three or four things to come together that were unusual for Trump to win. Not to come close. He was going to come close no matter what, but to win. Um, but the primary, you know, you got to give a lot of you got to give a lot of credit yeah. for. He connected. I, I, th- I think yeah. just. Uh, are we going to re- be okay, Nate? Are we going to be okay? Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, I are think you can be, argue. That's what we're all worried about. Are we going to be I okay? Think, I mean, I think a lot of things you take for granted, you shouldn't take for granted anymore. I think in some ways you see the system working, quote unquote. And you kind of see that, like, actually, I mean, the fact that for better or worse, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, Trump hasn't gotten all that much done. And the things he's gotten done are things like appointing a conservative Supreme Court justice that Marco Rubio or John Kasich would have gotten done instead. Um, so for better or worse, we're learning that there are a lot of constraints on a president's power. Um, the system works. And, you know, it's a system of checks and balances. I would also preface everything I said by saying we're only six, six months. months in. Um, yeah. You know, in some ways, Trump has backed down like he didn't fire sessions he did fire coming that got him in a lot of trouble frankly right he didn't fire sessions he didn't fire muller yet right he hasn't nuked someone <laughs> he's coming yet. to the brink and like you wonder if it's a little person you know kind of person who like kind of rages against things and needs some way to get the aggression out and so you fire sean spicer instead of sessions it's like kind of a healthy outlet <laughs> no american's going to be worse off for sean spicer not being sean secretary. spicer maybe although depending sean spicer i'll take firing spicer over uh, you, nuking you, someone you're mad at your wife and you uh, hit your dog that's yeah, right yeah nuke denmark or fire sean spicer that was the responsible decision i think <laughs> harry did you, want, you, want, you want, i don't want to keep you guys but if you want to say something no i was just going to quickly say for all the things that we've said about trump or that are said about trump that are negative the fact that he won that Republican nomination coming in being disliked by a majority of Republicans and was able to turn around and go from 2% in the Republican primary polls to winning 45% of the Republican primary vote is a very impressive feat. And the fact that he, a lot of people have taken him as a, have taken him as a joke this entire time and is right now the president of the United States and we're still a country that's together, I think is a, I, 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 I wouldn't underestimate Trump, but I would always point out that just because he's managed to exceed expectations in the past to some degree doesn't mean he won't fail in the future. We still have three and a half years to go. <laughs> like, he connected with me in many ways. We just, I think the country... Oh, we know that. No, no. I'm saying the country just wished, the country just wished that he could have been the person that he pretended to be rather than be the con that he turned out to be. But the, but the kind of things, this, you know, uh, rejecting political correctness and wanting to, uh, to regain America's uh, self-assurance in these things, these things, and to, to, to uh, get off the backs of small business, a lot of these things really did reverberate with yeah. me. But the guy, uh, you know, but the guy's a, it's a knucklehead. What are you going to do? All right. On that note, thanks very much. <laughs> right. Well, guys, thank you so much. And if you want to share your uh, Twitter or... Any link you like, Harry? 538.com. Forecaster, Anton. <laughs> Nate Silver, 538. China, right? Bria, China, Bria, B-R-I-A. And uh, Live from America podcast and the comedyseller.com. 
You were listening to Live from America podcast. To contact us, please go to www.livefromamericapodcast.com. Brought to you by the Comedy Cellar and Rethink Production. 